0: In this episode of Real World Serverless, I interviewed Matt Lewis and Chris Williams at the DVLA, which is the driver and vehicle licensing agency in the UK. We spoke about the many ways that DVLA is using serverless technologies like Lambda, API Gateway, Step Functions, and QLDB to accelerate feature development and to modernize their tech stack. We also spoke at length about security and the challenges that DVIA has faced as they transition from running everything on-premises to running serverless applications in the cloud in AWS. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless a podcast where i speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches today i'm joined by matt lewis and chris williams from the dvla welcome to the show guys hi Anne. hi Anne. um so for the audience who are not based in the uk can you tell us a bit about what is dvla and what are your roles over there
1: so uh, dvla stands for the drive and vehicle licensing agency so we're part of what's called the Department for Transport within central government in the UK. So we're responsible for registering, licensing all drivers in Great Britain, and that includes issuing the photocard driving licences, and also registering, licensing all vehicles in the UK, which includes their sort of registration certificates. And so most people know because of drivers and vehicles. We do we do more beside. So we basically maintain a, a core register about 49 and a half million active driver records and a register of around 43.5 million active vehicle records. Uh, So all told, that means we interact with about 92% of the entire UK adult population. We collect about £6 billion each year in in vehicle excise duty. So I'm Chief Architect there, and that includes predominantly tasks like setting technology direction.
2: Yeah, and uh, I'm Chris. I'm Principal Cloud Engineer, so I own the technical direction of our cloud platform. And that uh, includes the service workloads as well as our more traditional container workloads as well
0: so we worked together for a while and i saw you guys were doing some really cool stuff using serverless technologies and from a high level can you tell us how you guys are using serverless technologies to support all these inquiries against the driver and the vehicle data
1: yeah i mean like i say it's been a it's been a bit of a journey so we started I mean, I guess, I guess from a government perspective, it was relatively early on. And that was when we were starting to look at moving an API from uh, or create an API deploy it into public cloud, which the volumes have sort of grown exponentially. We were looking at traditional approaches of sort of deploying API platforms and configuring EC2 instances and auto-scaling groups. And then API Gateway launched something called usage plans. So we were able to sort of put some rate limiting in place. So we launched that, so our first... Service that went using service technologies launched sort of January 2017 as soon as the London region became available, and that was with API gateway, Cognito, Lambda. Uh, shortly after that, we moved into deploying some voice skills. So again, that was with Alexa, Lambda, and also Dynamo DB. But we also, you know, moved on from there and used it for a raft of different tasks. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting in the cloud
2: platform space, I think we probably started where most people start, and that's using Lambda for very much housekeeping tasks. So we had the usual things of triggering CloudWatch events to shut down instances, test instances for overnight uh, when we didn't need them, backups and things like that. But more recently, we've, including the stuff that Matt's mentioned, we moved into some quite uh, interesting use cases. Uh, One of them is using step functions, where we use step functions to orchestrate calling a number of APIs with the court system. And that includes all the kind of back off and uh, retries. And if they haven't quite finished processing the documentation, we try again. And all that is brilliantly automated for us and orchestrated. And then we've also got quite a few utility services now with uh, serverless. So one of the main ones being sort of our notification and printing services. So with our notification services, we interface with other government services, like the government notify service, then the AWS services of our SNS and SES, And with printing as well, we kind of have a queue mechanism for sending prints to our output services group here in the DVLA.
0: So that's quite a mix of workloads that you guys are using serverless for. So lots of things for us to unpack there. One question that springs to mind right away is that... As a government agency, you handle a lot of sensitive user data. Are there any special security requirements for how you manage that data? And did you guys get any pushback from other government or regulatory bodies when you were talking about moving to serverless?
1: I mean, I think there was definitely an element of what you call FUD when we first started looking at it. And some of that was probably it's not the the name itself in terms of serverless caused some confusion. to to certain people that you know obviously we have to go through information assurance and policy and data sharing and so on and and so you know anything that was different became a case of then we had to try and prove why it could be more secure so with some of those anything that i think involves change there's always a bit of a a learning curve there but you know i kind of think we're helped in that you know we're, we're not the only ones that have been on this journey and For example, in in the UK, we have the National Cybersecurity Center, so the NCSC. So they carried out a lot of research, and and it was really helpful because they have published their findings. And part of that was talking about how serverless can make you more secure in certain areas. So they talk about things like, you know, especially around patching and making sure the versions are up to date. And where you look at the shared responsibility and the handoff in terms of what the cloud provider will do for you, but they also found in terms of building smaller components, so things that do one thing. With serverless, you tend to automate from day one. And the other thing we see now as part of a a broader sort of cross-government joining up is that there's more and more government departments taking advantage of of serverless. So you can definitely see it's reaching that sort of tipping point of becoming quite a common approach.
0: That's such a great... Do you know if uh, those findings are published somewhere? Because I get these kind of similar questions... From a lot of enterprises about security, and again, like I said, a lot of it is just misunderstanding about security when it comes to serverless. And so many teams are so used to putting all the effort around security around the network boundaries, and uh, with serverless, you kind of just don't need that anymore. So, having something that's published by the UK government, I think that would be really good.
1: Yeah, I can definitely, you know, like I say, we'll definitely see if we can, if how wide it is published, and like I say, and they were looking at it to compare. Building your own solution using infrastructure as a service versus using service technologies from the main cloud providers. So it was cloud agnostic from that perspective, and they found a commonality, especially in certain areas in terms of how it formed you to think about designing solutions, how you sort of built automation in, you started small single responsibility principle, and there was a big focus then around the patching you can build service you know solutions or services that have vulnerabilities in them you know you still have to take account best practice but they kind of see that it's a it's a good starting point
0: yeah that's definitely what i'm hearing a lot from a lot of companies that are conscious about security and to fully understand how much work it takes to secure an infrastructure that you have to manage yourself and all the patching or the networking and everything around it which with serverless a lot of that is just been done by aws and I think you guys also are one of the early adopters when it comes to this brand new service, QLDB. So for the listeners who are not familiar with it, this is basically a ledger-based database. Can you tell us about what's your use case there and how have your experience been with QLDB so far?
1: Yeah, so you know, QLDB is the, the quantum ledger database. So that got announced reInvent 2018 in one of the keynotes. And part of the positioning of it is that it's you know it's another one of the the family of purpose built databases, and so because for us you know we touched on a register of drivers, a register of vehicles, we have a register of tachograph cards and trailers and registration numbers or license plates, and we also operate as a centralised authority for them. And so the ledger database you know it goes back centuries to things like double entry bookkeeping. For us, what it sort of gives you out of the box is the fact that QLDB is a, a journal-first architecture, they call it. So when you try and commit a transaction, the transaction is committed to the journal and only committed transactions end up in this journal and then it generates these materialized views. So it provides a view of the, the current state of a record and it also provides an indexed history. So that history then gives you a complete audit trail of every revision or every change that's been made to a document. So it, So it takes what... Traditionally, it would have been seen as things like a write-ahead log or a transaction log within a database, and it makes that accessible. So it makes that like a first-class citizen that you interact with. And then on top of that, they built a-, a Merkle tree, and that allows you then to sort of cryptographically verify the integrity of any version of a document. So you can prove that that document exists in that ledger and that it hasn't been altered in any way since it was first written. So basically it uses a SHA-256 hash and hash chaining, to show that no changes have been written. I think the you know one of the cool things about you know for me about QLDB is some of the new features. There's something called streams that's in preview at the moment. So that allows you to start looking at um, I guess what would be seen as a change data capture pattern. So you can hook a QLDB stream up to a Kinesis data stream. So when a record is committed, so a transaction's committed onto the journal, that will get streamed out, and then you can have consumers that pick that up and do some processing with it. So for us, one of our use cases is, you know, because we maintain these registers, we have far more users that interact with us for inquiries than for actual transactions or updating a a system of record. So we're able in that use case to put a lambda function consuming the data from Kinesis and filtering out any data that's considered personal information we wouldn't want and actually populating something like, you know, a table in dynamo to be able to do a single digit latency high volume inquiry. So then you have that separation from QLDB as the journal, as the ledger, as the source of truth, and things like read models. You know, again, you can choose the, the right purpose-built model. So if we want to do fuzzy search, we could put it in something like Elasticsearch. If we wanted to do a high volume key value lookup, we could put it in, in Dynamo. And all of those are then fully managed serverless components. Uh, like I say, it is a, it's a relatively new service. So the, you, know, you still go through some of the, the learning points as it gets built out. And what's good about it then is you can start trying to influence and provide feedback and you sort of see how the service matures over time. You know, like for us, little things like just getting our head around. So it uses Ion as a data structure, not JSON. And that's because it provides, uh, you know, has binary representation and text representation, but it, it supports things like timestamps. You can be more precise which is needed when you're creating cryptographic hashes. There's libraries that allow you to work with that easily in Java, but the node ones are still work in progress.
0: All right. That it sounds really, really cool. And uh, so I guess the tooling side of things is going to improve over time as uh, more and more people start to adopt this and AWS spend more time to focusing on improving the SDK itself.
1: It launched with CloudFormation on day one.
0: <laughs> wow. That's for, that, that, that's for a change. <laughs> Um, so I think you also touched on uh, some service integration that you're doing as well. I remember from our time working together, one of the challenges that you had was you have all this, I guess, sort of truth being stored in really legacy databases and this connectivity between them and your serverless application was a challenge. Maybe can you talk about some of the problems that you experienced there and is there any sort of learning that you took from that that may be useful to the listeners?
1: There's probably a couple of points to touch on there. So, there's aspects where you look at how do you extract data out of some of the legacy systems and then sort of stream them and keep them up to date. And I think the other, you know, some of the other things was, sort of, you know, looking at, and, and there's still sort of challenges that we have at the moment is also how we are sort of doing things differently in a serverless approach as opposed to a more servered or, or traditional approach. You know, so aspects around that is what we found with, with serverless is we were able to, you know, we were trying to go. Full with then teams that sat and worked above that data. And because we're trying to, you know, we very much look at least privilege and secure by design. And because of that, we've suddenly ended up going down things like a multi-account structure. Uh, and then some of the things we've been looking at around if we didn't want some of the traffic to traverse on public internet and looking at things like private, private APIs. So, you know, you've been a lot more involved in that, in that Chris, haven't you? Yeah, so we've had uh, some interesting time with ETLs. Because of
2: the nature of the data, what we've kind of done is had uh, new ETL processes for each use case. So we have a number of different ways you can inquire on a vehicle, for example. Historically, we've had a number of processes all doing similar stuff, but as part of the ETL only uh, making some of the data visible in Dynodb or RDS, Postgres. What we've kind of found is rather than having all the ETL processes and, and running these multiple processes, We're kind of taking the approach of just having the one and move it up to the cloud. And then from there, uh, we can use services like DynamoDB to do uh, queries on that data quite easily.
0: So with serverless being a big change to how you've been doing things, what were some of the challenges you found with bringing a lot of engineers over to this new world? Did you have to fight pushbacks from these engineers who now have to work in a very different way and have to take on more DevOps responsibilities was there anything that you found particularly useful in convincing these engineers and getting them skilled up and ready for a different way of working?
2: Yeah, so from a service point of view, it's it's really great from an ownership point of view. Uh, and as we move to more of a, a product model at DVLA, it's, it's really, really useful to have uh, teams that own the full stack from development all the way to production. With that has come uh, a few cultural changes here as well. So we've had a very much structure of support run and uh, build. So we tend to hand stuff over to a sport organization. Uh, so yeah, some of the challenges around that have been uh, a little bit interesting. Uh, Matt mentioned earlier on about multiple account structures. So one of the, the ways we're trying to give squads and teams their sense of ownership is by having them own in their own accounts. And there's challenges around that as well. So in a Kubernetes platform which we've run historically we've been able to solve things like the monitoring, the alerting, the log shipping quite nicely because it's all deployed into a shared platform. With uh, serverless we've kind of had to have a cloud engineering function which has uh, enabled the sort of things like log shipping into a central account so we still have the Elastics stack that our support teams can use to monitor. And the multiple account structures has been very much an interest uh, for us, as you know, Jan. So we have a centrally managed API gateway, and we've quickly become aware of the handoffs required to manage those APIs. So when I say a centrally managed API gateway, this contains uh, all of our user pools in Cognito. So all of our authentications done through there, our usage plans, uh, it's all defined by Swagger documentation. So to actually expose an API from a squad who's responsible to that, there's this very manual process, and also it's it's very difficult to version those APIs across the two teams uh, so yeah we've had some, we've had some real interesting points around that.
1: yeah, I guess from my perspective, there's also been the even getting getting up and running in terms of the concept of you know day one was simple in terms of building a simple prototype, especially where we're using things like service framework. So that made it easy to quickly stand up something like API Gateway, Lambda, Dynamo, or whatever collection of services that we were looking at. But what we did find is that we were traditionally a Java shop, and you know, I guess if you look at Datadog, New Relics, Data Service reports that are coming out, you know, the vast majority of probing languages are the sort of Node, Python, those types of languages. And the, there was sort of like a desire. I think we sort of settled on Node, and some of that was just how to build smaller functions and and At the time, there were very real cold start issues using Java. And it all seemed simple in terms of getting up and running, but then it was the sort of like the operational readiness around it. So as soon as you suddenly adopted a new programming language, you had to think about, well, what are we going to do for linting? What are we going to do for unit tests? How are we vulnerability scanning them? How are we going to package them up? And then the whole wider piece, things like monitoring, alerting, Chris touched on things like log shipping. So those are types of things that we'd solved for the container platform. And then we introduced a whole new programming language, a whole approach. How does it fit in with the deployment pipeline? So those are then all things that we've subsequently had to solve.
0: So that's quite a common complaint I've heard in terms of uh, when it comes to serverless, some of the languages are just better suited and better supported than others. And I've had quite a few customers who ended up doing a similar migration from. .NET or from Java to node or Python, because again, the cold start on some of those languages are just inappropriate for a lot of use cases anything that's user facing basically so i guess that's certainly one area that aws is working on and you know, i do hope that they will better support java and dotnet core going forward improving the performance and cold starts on those platforms beyond just letting you say use provision concurrency to get around the fact that you're going to have cold starts that are a couple of seconds long Are there any other platform limits or general tooling problems that you have run into as a developer, working with serverless day-to-day that makes your life difficult?
1: I mean, there's there's a more general one from my perspective, which is just the, you know, how rapidly cloud providers evolve in terms of bringing out new services, bringing out new features. AWS, for example, aren't opinionated. They provide almost like a menu that people can pick and choose from. But what you then end up is if you're going to draw one of these Venn diagrams, there's a huge overlap in the middle. So we're looking at some of these things now, and it's there going, we may traditionally have used something like SQS uh, or SNS SQS as a fan out pattern. And then, oh, but actually, we could use Kinesis here. or oh, now there's a vent bridge. And it, it seems that there's so many ways now to solve something. There's then a nervousness in terms of is this the right approach or not? And like I say, and it then becomes quite difficult to keep on top of all the changes that are that are coming out, and looking which ones should you go back and retrofit because they're going to give you some value. It's interesting
2: as well. So one of my takeaways from reinvent and one of the shocks was a couple of talks about one table designs in DynamoDB, which is a big change for us. So you know we're, we're kind of used to uh, relational databases, uh, and we we've actually had some quite large uh, AWS bills based on DynamoDB you have just taken the approach that we can put another global secondary index here. It'll be fine. We just want to inquire on a on a different type. Uh, so, so it's around that sort of stuff as well, which uh, has kind of been a change for our developers.
0: Yeah, on that uh, DynamoDB single table design, I do think it's uh, it's very powerful, very clever but sometimes I think it's uh, too clever for my liking, also too clever for many of the companies that are using DynamoDB. On the AWS, not having any opinion around what you should use, that's also a really good observation because again, a lot of customers ask me that same question, when do I use SNS versus SQS versus EventBridge, Kinesis, IoT Core, and uh, for an API side of things, there's also API Gateway, REST API, now there's HTTP API, and then there's also ALB as well. How do I choose between all these different services that seem to do a very similar thing? So I do hope that Amazon will offer you, I guess, more reference architectures and talk about why certain decisions are better in some context rather than just giving you this huge selection of different things you can try and mix and match yourself but not really telling you when one is better than others given different contexts. Um, is there anything else that Amazon could do better besides better documentation, having more reference architecture-based tutorials rather than just, hey, here's a service? Is there anything else that uh, you think, okay, as a customer, I really love Amazon to do X?
2: Yeah, so so for me, I think uh, Amazon have uh, lots of very nice simple use case examples. Uh, but when it comes to what we mentioned before about multi account structures and, and how we limit blast radius, the kind of more complicated, I'll even call them real-life solutions. I don't feel like there's much guidance on that, uh, which is a big issue for us. Uh, and then things like, so we we're an early adopter of Cognito, for example, and the CloudFormation support and the tooling around that was incredibly slow. Uh, you know, and, and using custom resources isn't nice, and then trying to retrofit that back into CloudFormation. we have had lots of fun around that.
0: Yeah, Cognito is another very complex uh, piece of uh, machinery that many people get confused by but i guess that with some of the other alternatives uh, like off zero the pricing on off zero is just insane Uh, i think a lot of customers uh, go to cognito because the pricing is more gentle it's more acceptable for their workloads so i think that covers everything that i wanted to cover is anything else that you guys want to tell the listeners maybe DVLA is hiring and how can people find you guys on the internet
1: you know, there is a thing in terms of we're really keen to reach out and grow a community down here in South Wales. So, like I say, we're, you know, both myself and Chris are on the organising team for Serverless Days Cardiff. We've just done our second edition of that. And as part of that, we've got a, a Serverless South Wales meetup that's been kicked off. So obviously we'd love people to, to join and take part in that. And one thing I kind
2: of mention is uh, we've got a real exciting Cloud Academy kicking off which is a two-year program uh, where we take people with just a simple interest in IT and cloud, put them through a 12-week boot camp, and then they get to join uh, one of the DVLA cloud engineering teams and get some real-life experience. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that program kicking off.
0: Is that program targeted at students or is it open to everyone?
2: It's it's open to everyone. Uh, it's on civil service jobs. Uh, so yeah, if anyone's interested, then please take a look.
0: All right, sounds great. And I guess that's going to be hosted in the DVI office.
2: Yes, yeah, it will be,
0: yeah, in Swansea. You guys did an amazing job for Serverless stage at Cardiff. I had a great time on both occasions and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys again next year.
1: Same to you as well, Jan.
0: I'd like to thank you guys for joining me today and spending time to share with us your stories at the DVOA and serverless.
1: My problems. Thank, thank you, Jan. Cheers, Jan. Thank you.
0: So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. Thank you guys very much for joining us for this conversation with Matt Lewis and Chris Williams. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. I'll see you guys next time.